two master suites in a house so they can both live essentially as roommates under the same roof. What hold them to get, uh, hold them, holds them together are kids, if they have any, and various interests, causes, or social networks. One Christian counselor said, I would submit that that marriage is hanging on by a thread. They're already living separate parallel lives of convenience. So when something that's holding you together leaves or falls through, these marriages often end in divorce. No kids or interests are the same. It's just ripe for divorce or adultery. Then we have Christian egalitarianism. Where there's no distinction between the roles of husband and wife. Now we've been studying pretty hard the last few weeks that there is equality within marriage. There's equality in value and worth between the people made in God's image. Uh, But there's difference in function and role. Christian egalitarianism says there's no distinction at all between the roles of husband and wife. They also tend to live parallel lives, his life, his job, his finances, her life, her job, her finances, but they often share some underlying short-lived fleeting elements like kids or hobbies or church maybe. A problem is, is that God wants us to be one as he is one, yet there's a separated two-ness in this, not a oneness. As the kids grow up, the distance grows, marriages get distance. Men have midlife crisis. Women try to find their identity. When the child leaves, so does the glue. And thirdly, Christian complementarianism comes from the phrase of, I will make him a help meet comparable to him or that complements him. It's the teaching of the Bible from beginning to end. Husband and wife fulfill distinct roles. They live as one together under God's authority and unified purpose. The husband lovingly and sacrificially leads his husband. The wife respects and follows the leadership of her husband. And the children lovingly obey their mother and father. What holds them together is that they live as worshipers in God's universe, following the design and the plan laid out in the Bible. C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, in your notes, The Christian idea of marriage is based on Christ's words that a man and wife are to be regarded as a single organism. For that is what the words one flesh would be in modern English. And the Christians believe that uh, that when he said this, he was not expressing a sentiment, but stating a fact. Just as one is stating a fact when one says that a lock and its key are one mechanism, or that a violin and a bow are one musical instrument. We're going to touch on the difference between a covenant versus a partnership. Swiss theologian Karl Barth wrote that marriage is the encounter of male and female in which the free, mutual, harmonious choice of love, unrestricted, shared, synced decision of love, on the part of a particular man and woman leads to a responsibly undertaken life union which is lasting, complete, and exclusive. Karl Barth captures the spirit of the word a Bible uses repeatedly to speak of marriage, and that is covenant. 
In Proverbs, in Malachi, the word speaks of the marriage covenant. You hear of covenant frequently in the word, the Noah covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. David and Jonathan made a covenant. We read of the new covenant in Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and in the Gospels. We read of a better covenant, an eternal covenant. Jesus writes and in, in, speaks of a new covenant sealed with his blood. Covenant is a complex term that's rich in meaning, both inside the Bible and outside of the Bible. It's a reference to the man and woman's pledge that they've made to one another, an agreement, a mutual obligation, and a commitment. Covenant is used in a way that goes far beyond mere obligation or a commitment. In the Old Testament, it was the free, mutual, harmonious choice of love on the part of Yahweh towards Israel. And in the New Testament, the covenant is a free, mutual, harmonious choice of love on behalf of Christ to the church. A partnership implies equality and sharing on every single level. In the covenant of marriage, man takes the initiative and assumes greater responsibility for maintaining that relationship. The wife responds and assumes that role as a helpmeet. There is sharing, that's great, but not in every level and to the same degree. Man is the breadwinner or the main source of income in a way that determines the spiritual direction and orientation as a family. He's the father of the family. He assumes responsibility in keeping this position. As senior partner, he must be willing and able to sacrifice more than his wife. The wife is the helpmeet and potentially a mother and may have an outside job, but her work does not determine the spiritual direction and orientation of the family. Now, covenant relationship doesn't mean that the couple will share the same interests and hobbies. It does mean that they will share the same faith and the same basic concerns since covenant is derived from Christ and his relationship with his bride, the church. Covenant doesn't mean that the husband is the master in every area, but it does mean both are servants to one another and to God. Partnership implies the husband and wife are co masters, but covenant shows that both are servants just in different ways. And Jesus is the master in every sense of that word. Covenant is not to be confused with a patriarchal relationship that characterized Victorian era families. The husband is not a dictator, but he's a provider. He's a loving leader. The wife is not a slave but a loving companion and overseer of the house. Looking in your notes there, Titus, your notes seem a little longer, and it's because I gave you a lot more stuff, but I also wrote out a lot of the verses for you. I'm lying, I didn't write them out, I copied and pasted them from my Bible software. Sorry, my bad. But Titus says that the older women likewise, jump down to verse four, they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, Good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Now, the modern concept is that the marital relationship is based on common interest and values. The biblical concept is that the marital relationship is based on common faith, mutual respect, 
and self-giving love. I kind of blew into it there, but that wife role, uh, not a slave, up just uh, a little above there, but a loving companion and overseer of the house. In Titus, we are told that there's this wonderful role of homemaking. These ideas pulsate through Paul's writing to the Ephesians. Again, what C.S. Lewis said, marriage is the encounter of male and female in which the free, mutual, harmonious choice of love on the part of a particular man and woman leads to a responsibly undertaken life union which is lasting, complete, and exclusive. It's a covenant relationship in which both partners are under the lordship of Jesus They're mutually devoted to serving each other, yet clearly have bearing their own distinct responsibilities. There's a covenant in marriage to lovingly lead on the part of the husband and a covenant to lovingly submit on the part of the wife. John Piper said one of Paul's points in the passage is that the roles of husband and wife in marriage are not arbitrarily assigned And they're not reversible without obscuring God's purpose for marriage. The roles of husband and wife are rooted in the distinctive roles of Christ and his church. God means by marriage to say something about his son and his church by the way husbands and wives relate to each other. But this covenant is distorted at the fall. The relationship is distorted at the fall. Think about it for a moment And what we've seen so far in the series, the things and the problems that we see happening within marriage or maybe the issues that arise through leadership or submission are not because headship and submission exist, but because sin has twisted man's humble, loving headship into hostile domination in some men, hostile domination, but in other men, lazy indifference. And it twists women's intelligent, willing submission into manipulative compliance in some women, and in other women, brazen insubordination. I think the world needs to hear that sin didn't create headship and submission, but it ruined them, and it distorted them, and it made them ugly and destructive. But the gospel brings, the second point, the redeeming of headship and submission. It doesn't dismantle the original created order of loving headship and willing submission, but it recovers it from the ravages of sin. Headship is not a right to command and control. It's a responsibility to love like Christ, to lay down your life for your wife in servant leadership. And submission is not slavish or cowering or coerced. It's not the way Jesus wants the church to respond to his leadership. He wants it to be free and willing and glad and refined and strengthened. What this passage of scripture in Ephesians does is two things Number one, it guards against the abuses of headship by telling the husbands, you've got to love like Jesus. 
And it guards against the debasing of submission by telling the wife to respond the way the church does to Jesus. Headship is the divine calling of a husband to take primary responsibility for Christ-like servant leadership, protection, and provision in the home. Submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and to help carry it through according to her gifts. Last week we asked, what determines if a marriage is a Christian marriage? Well, today something to add that would be that there is a broad submission that submits to a spare nothing unto death kind of love. Submission has been defined as her voluntary yielding to the love of her husband. Ephesians 5.22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. The first word is wives. It addresses the wives. The metaphor in the 1960s and 70s for feminism was she's a bra burner. Back then, that was a revolutionary concept. But this is something that's way more astounding than bra burner. It's voluntary yielding to the love of your husband. Her voluntary yielding to her husband, I think this is in your notes, will display her voluntary yielding to the Lord Jesus and her Christian integrity. Voluntary yielding to her husband will display her voluntary yielding to the Lord Jesus and her Christian integrity integrity. The point is a good Christian cannot be a bad wife. A good Christian cannot be a bad wife. Many times you can look at a person and how they respond to their husband and you can tell how they respond to the Lord. In verse 21, we saw that we submit to one another in the fear of the Lord There's mutual submission that happens. I know that some of this is repetitive, but it's something that you got to preach to yourself every single day in any relationship that you're in. I'm screening some of my notes to cut down on some time a little bit. In Genesis 2, prior to the fall, we have the first implication of the headship of Adam. That's why the very first sermon we taught in this was from Genesis chapter 2. And then Paul speaks of it, not only in Ephesians 5, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the headship of the husband. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 3, it's in your notes. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now if you jump down a few verses to verse 7 in 1 Corinthians 11... For a man indeed ought not to cover his head since he's the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord, For as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman, but all things are from God. In 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 11, let a woman learn 
in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, and self-control. We don't have time to get into some of these complicated passages. You can look online on our website. We've taught through all these tough passages before. Um, Some of it speaks towards the relationship within the church, um, but especially towards that of the relationship of the wife towards her husband. Christian dignity in submission is because submission on the part of Christian wife is dignified by the example of Christ's relationship to the church. Look at verse 22 of Ephesians 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Then there's this word in verse 23, for, for the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. The concepts of submission and headship have been frequently perverted by sinful men. Many husbands have used it as a tool for tyranny. Some of us have experienced that or witnessed it, if not in our own marriage, in our parents' or our grandparents' marriage or our neighbor's marriage. But we cannot let these distortions legitimize the dismissal of this text altogether. People frequently speak of it as if it devalues and diminishes women But God's word is actually elevating women, putting them on a pedestal in a way no other movement, including the feminist movement, ever has. People have tried very hard to make the word submission or headship mean something other than authority. One common objection to the pattern of leadership and submission is that the term head does not carry the meaning of leadership at all. Instead, it means source. Somewhat like we would use for the word fountainhead or the head of a river, the source. But as Art Azurdia said, that dog don't hunt, okay? Uh, It was Tim Savage that writes, there are long studies to show that this is not the normal meaning for the word head, as if it's just the source. In Paul's day, you never read these articles because they're too technical. So let's try to show you something from these verses that everyone can see. The husband is pictured as the head of his wife, as Christ is pictured as the head of the church, his body, in verses 29 and 30. Now, if head just means the source, then what is the husband the source of? What does the body get from the head? Well, our bodies get nourishment from our head. We can understand that because the mouth is in the head and nourishment comes from the mouth to the body. That's not all the body gets from the head. It gets guidance because the eyes are in the head. It gets alertness and protection because the ears are in the head. In other words, if the husband as head is one flesh with his wife, his body, and if he's there for her source of guidance and food and alertness, then the natural conclusion is that the head or the husband has a primary responsibility for leadership, for provision, for protection, Paul uses this word head in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 through 23. Jesus is uh, not only the head of the church in Ephesians chapter four, verse, uh, 5, verse 24, 
but he's also the savior of the church, a savior who surrenders his life for his covenant with his wife, uh, the bride. Look in Philippians 2, 2 through 8 there in your notes, and maybe just mark that to read through it later. It speaks of the savior type servant love of the head of the church, Jesus Christ. The functional headship of a husband is to be exercised within the context of a sacrificial, spare nothing unto death kind of love, a savior kind of love. That's a phrase that's stuck in my heart um, since I've taught this back in like 2012 and again in 2017. Sacrificial, spare nothing unto death kind of love. And, uh, and that's a good example of, of uh, a husband's love modeling Jesus. This is the nature, or I should, I, I skipped something there in your notes. Other lovers seek and enjoy a surrender of the woman, but this lover, Jesus, for his bride, surrendered himself. This is the nature, the disposition of his headship, and it establishes the aroma of our authority as husbands. This brings great dignity to submission because she's so prized by him, he will spare nothing to seek and secure her good, even at his own personal expense. What all of this does is it shows us that headship doesn't mean I have the final say as husband, I have the final vote, my way goes, because that's not what head means when we look at Jesus. This passage doesn't tell us that the husband outranks the wife, so we get to make the final decision, but it shows us that as a husband, I love you, so I have to make the best decision for your benefit driven by the priority of love that I have for you over myself. So it doesn't mean I get my way, men. It means whatever I choose has to be driven by your best interests. Now, can't that best interest be perverted to like, well, I want to do this and I want this for my life. Best interest is what will lead to your physical well-being, your safety, your provision, your health, but most importantly, gals, your spiritual maturity and life of worship toward the creator. The subtle meaning in Ephesians is that Ephesians doesn't tell the husband, be the head. It says, you are the head. And so the husband asks, well, how do I function as the head? In the same way, Jesus is the head of the church, loving her in whatever cost it is to yourself. So if you're asking the question, who gets to make the final call, you're apart from Ephesians chapter 5. It's the wrong question to ask. It's that I am in every way absorbed with what's best for her. Every decision I make is in relation to serving her. In the covenant of marriage, the head belongs to the husband, that that role. Headship conveys authority. He leads, supplies direction. The weight of responsibility with that family direction is unique to him as the head. He bears a responsibility that demands a deeper sacrifice. This is what Paul implies in headship. So husbands should be playing, praying, teaching, and serving as priests to the children, serving around the house, caring for their wife, making opportunities for rest and refreshment for their wife. 
Women so often say, I want to follow, but my husband won't lead. He's a slug on the couch and he doesn't do anything. I wish he'd pray. I wish he'd read to me, but he will not. So wives step in and they start to lead. Guilt and frustration build and build until she, until he finally shouts a decree to obey and wonder why his wife doesn't respond with a greater degree of joy and delight. There's failure in not leading in this husband's part. Not failure in leading, but failure to lead at all. Whenever leadership, control, and position are fought over, it's good to remember Mark 10.45. I believe it's in your notes. It's the key verse of the Gospel of Mark. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When we talk about leadership, and a lot of time even within the church, and elders, and you know, senior pastors, and deacons, and um, women in the church leadership, men in the church leadership, a lot of times the conversation starts at like power and authority when it needs to begin at service and laying down life. In, in any aspect of leadership, that's true. And Jesus led that for us in Mark 10, 45. Have you guys ever uh, read the book? Maybe it's the gals that I would look to. Um, best-selling novel, Christie. It was also a TV series like back in the 90s. Written by Catherine Wood. Catherine Wood was married to the um, Peter Marshall, the late chaplain of the U.S. Senate. In the 1930s, Catherine Wood was asked by her future a spouse to speak a few words to a rowdy group of young men and women. And though this was spoken 82 years ago, and though she was only 20, year old, 20 years old when she spoke them, it's resoundingly true for us today as well. She said, I never thought much about being a girl until two years ago when I learned from a man what a wonderful thing it is to be a woman. Until that Sunday morning, I considered myself lucky to be living in the 20th century, the century of progress and emancipation, the century when supposedly we women came into our own. But I'd forgotten that the emancipation of women really began with Christianity. When a girl, a very young girl, received the greatest honor in history, she was chosen to be the mother of the savior of the world. And when her son grew up and began to teach his way of life, he ushered women into a new place in human relations. He accorded her a dignity she'd never known before and crowned her with such glory that down through the ages, she was revered, protected, and loved. Men wanted to think of her as different from themselves, better, made of finer, more delicate clay. It remained for the 20th century, the century of progress, to pull her down from her throne. She wanted equality for 1,900 years. She had not been equal. She'd been superior. To stand equal with men, naturally, she had to step down. Now being equal with men, she's won all their rights and privileges. The right to get drunk, the right to swear, the right to smoke, the right to work like a man, to think like a man, to act like a man. We've won all this. But how can we feel so triumphant when men no longer feel as romantic about us as they did about our grandmothers? When we've lost something sweet and mysterious, something as hard to describe as the haunting, wistful fragrance of violets. Of course, 
These aren't my original thoughts. They're the thoughts I heard that Sunday morning. But from them, some thoughts of my own were born, and the conclusion reached that somewhere along the line, we women got off the track. And so this is the unique dignity that God assigns to a Christian wife, that she's to be the recipient of her husband's savior-like love. She's to respond to that love, not with autonomy from, in, or independence of him, but by following him. A woman is given the privilege of being the object of her husband's savior-like love. Some practical implications of this is that it's transformed what leading looks like. Leading looks like serving. It's transformed what submission looks like. And oh, that we may give wives the honor and the dignity and the respect that makes it the most natural thing in the world to respect their husbands. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote from his prison cell a wedding sermon for his uh, good friend marrying his sister. It's called Wedding Sermon from a Prison Cell in 1945. Now when the husband is called the head of the wife, it goes on to say, as Christ is the head of the church, something of the divine splendor is reflected in our earthly relationships. And this reflection we should recognize and honor. The dignity that is here ascribed to the man lies not in any capacities or equalities of his own, but in the office conferred on him by his marriage. The wife should see her husband clothed in this dignity, but for him it is a supreme responsibility. As the head, it is he who is responsible for his wife, for their marriage, and for their home. On him falls the care and protection of the family. He represents it to the outside world. He is its mainstay and comfort. He is the master of the house who exhorts, punishes, helps, and comforts and stands for it as their priest before God. So this was uh, wrapping up. We're done with that part, part seven of our uh, 10 week or 10 part series. And, uh, and that was concerning the dignity of submission which then begs and implies, uh, how far does this submission thing go? What's the extent of submission? And we'll look at that after the break. So why don't you guys go ahead and take a break, get some agua, get one of those sweet sandwich rolls, and step outside if you need to cool off. Don't get struck by lightning. And we'll gather back together in just a second. The child was a typical four-year-old girl, cute, inquisitive, bright as a new shiny penny, When she expressed difficulty in grasping the concept of marriage, her father decided to pull out his wedding photo album, thinking visual images would help. On uh, one page after another, he pointed out the bride arriving at the church, the entrance, the wedding ceremony, the recessional, the reception. Now do you understand, he asked. I think so, she said. Is that when mommy came to work for us? Marriage is frighteningly self-revealing. <laughs> Prior to being married, I thought I, to being married, I thought I was a pretty easy guy to live with, you know, um, a little rough with my sisters, but as a roommate, like, 
hey, I'm a pretty good dude, you know, like this is a, this is a pretty good thing. And it'll be super easy uh, to just lose these dirtbag guys and to bring this lovely gal on into the home. And it's just crazy how quickly I saw how self-absorbed and how self-consumed I was, how selfish I was, and honestly, how that continues in me so often. I see it, and the Lord brings conviction of it. Marriage is self-revealing, showing us that, our need for a Savior and our need for the power of the Holy Spirit to make this thing not only work, but to be something that's a fragrance of Christ to this world. George Gilder wrote in Men and Marriage, the marriage is the one institution that tames the chronic deep-seated barbarianism of man. You get that, right, Joe? He's like, me, Joe, how? (laughs) Marriage is sanctifying. Marriage is sanctifying. It's not to ensure our happiness, but it's a gift of God to ensure our holiness. How does this happen? By calling us, by motivating us, by empowering us to imitate and copy Jesus within the context of marriage, by calling you to distinct roles that find their perfect expression in none other than Jesus. It's Christ's kind of submission on the part of a Christian wife to a Christ kind of love on the part of a Christian husband. Mutual responsibilities that imitate Jesus in this, in that they both require a radical self-renunciation. Daily, a taking up of the cross. Responsibilities that rely totally on the power of the Holy Spirit. There's redemptive genius in God's design of it. The purpose he has for you to conform you to be like Jesus, which has always been God's purpose for your life. Romans 8, 28, great memory verse through verse 29. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. It's been the plan since before the foundations of the world that you be conformed into the image of Jesus. You might remember last week that God's design for marriage is that it's a choreographed dance of love, but it's with non-exchangeable steps or else toes get stepped on, right? In that waltz. Headship is the divine calling of a husband to take that primary responsibility for Christ-like servant leadership, or as one man called it, lion-hearted leadership, and protection and provision for the home, and submission, don't let it get old, there's a little switch up in it here, thanks to Piper adding something to it, the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership, and to help carry it through according to her gifts. So she helps and supports that headship. The calling of wives is Submission. It's not a dirty word, and not only to wives, but all Christians are called to submit. Submission is the destiny of everyone who names the name of Jesus. 
Hopefully by now you've got Ephesians 5.21 memorized, submitting to one another in the fear of God. And concerning marriage, the right definition, submission on the part of a Christian wife is defined as the voluntary yielding of, uh, to the love of her husband. And we want to look at the extent of this. This is an obvious question that comes concerning submission. It's an issue of extent. How far do we take this submission? To what degree or level or magnitude are there boundaries to submission and limitations? If you look at the end of Ephesians 5.24, let the wives be, well, I should read the whole verse. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands. And then there's this last little phrase, in everything. All things. But you got to compare it to Ephesians 5.24, that it's as the church submits to Christ. Why wouldn't the wife submit to her husband if his main concern is her greatest good? And that's Christ's concern. It's always for the greatest good of the church. And the church always reciprocate, reciprocates with submission to him in everything. And so the submission of a wife to the husband, that extent is determined by the extent of the church's submission to Christ. We come to it over and over and over again, this dynamic between the church and Christ. When Paul implies uh, to Christ being the head of the church, he's implying Jesus' responsibility to us to lead us and to protect us and to provide for us to name a few things. And then he implies of our responsibility to Jesus, that we would never move independent from him or refuse when he directs us, but we respond eagerly when he directs us. If there's a misfire in our response to him, something's wrong. Think of this in the human realm concerning headship and the body's response to the head. When a human body acts independently from the head, it's an abnormality. It's called a convulsion, independent from the mind and the will. Convulsions like Parkinson's disease. Uh, my grandpa, he was uh, a bombardier in World War II in a B-17, flew 32 missions over Europe and on D-Day, and, and yet his entire life he had these tremors and these trembles. And... Uh, and actually, he won the Pickle Barrel Award uh, for best accuracy uh, back when they were training before going to Europe. And all his whole life, he, you know, adjusting the Norden bombsite on the plane or holding a cell phone when I'd see him later on in life. And he'd have to lean against a wall to hold his hand still. Or, I mean, the best one was he was trying to eat peas off of his plate, you know. And, oh, miss. Oh, dang it. Oh, you know. Those convulsions when our muscles and our body act apart from the head it's not healthy the opposite condition is a stroke the body is willed to move by the brain it's told to move by the brain by the head but it won't move we had a kid in our youth group when i was a youth pastor that would have just horrible seizures at church and uh and need to be carried out of the amphitheater he would he would be in just a complete paralysis for a period of time. I have another friend that he'd be walking along and his body would freeze up 
Uh, it's happened in crosswalks, and he's just like froze in the middle of crosswalks. And, and my dad, a stroke victim, uh, just some disconnect there, you know, where his body's not moving when his brain's telling him to move. It, to move. And my dad would get so frustrated uh, when he'd be trying to tell his hand to grip a foam ball and his hand just isn't moving. And he's like, I'm doing everything I've ever done. And it's not listening. And it would be so frustrating. Convulsions and strokes are not two altogether different problems, but different manifestations of the same problem. The body acting apart from the head. As a church and as a congregation, we're never to act independently from our head, Jesus Christ. To do so would be a convulsion, a spiritual abnormality. On the other hand, we shouldn't drag our heels and be slow to respond when he marks out a path for us to take. That also be a spiritual abnormality. God helps us to never go beyond the leadership of the Lord Jesus Christ or to linger when there's been a leading from the Lord. He loves us. He cares for us. He gives his life for us. His heart and will is to do what's best for us. And so our response should be to readily respond to his leadership over us. In doing so, we discover that there was never a basis for any of our fears in following him. We never feel stifled in following him, demeaned, disregarded, debased, disappointed, or exploited. The point is, as the church submits to Christ, so also the wife should submit in everything to her husband. What this call to submission does not mean, and some of it's going to be repetitive. I'll go through the repetitive stuff fast. I think probably a big point tonight that wasn't in previous studies it does not mean that all Christian women must submit to all Christian men. Sure, all Christians are to submit to one another. As citizens, we're submissive to our governing authorities. As parishioners, we're submissive to pastors and elders. As employees, we're submissive to our employers. Our capacity to exercise joy in these different relationships is directly determined by our submitting to the Lord. And all of it hangs on verse 18, being filled with the Holy Spirit. How can you tell if someone is genuinely, authentically filled with the Holy Spirit? They submit to one another out of a reference for Christ. Uh, Matthew Henry wrote in the 15th century, as a general foundation for these duties, he lays down that rule, verse 21, there's a mutual submission that Christians owe one to another, condescending to bear one another's burdens, not advancing themselves above others, nor domineering over one another and giving laws to one another. Where there is this mutual condescension and submission, the duties of all relations will be the better performed. It's been mentioned that the German word hostoffel or house table was a summary of these actions given by Martin Luther. The term is said to have been coined by Martin Luther that a hostoffel, he even includes it in Luther's small catechism, it's this order of God's design within the home. Guzik writes, and I don't believe it's in your notes, but to submit means that you recognize someone has legitimate authority over you. 
It means you recognize that there's an order of authority and that you're part of a unit, a team. You as an individual are not more important than the working of the unit or the team. When we submit to God, we recognize God's authority and act accordingly. When we submit to the police, we recognize the authority of the police and act accordingly. When we submit to our employer, we recognize the authority of our employer and we act accordingly. And as we step into Paul's house table, Paul is speaking in the context of marital exclusiveness between a man and a woman. Rather, I might go deeper, between a husband and a wife. Verse 22, submit to your own husband. And verse 24, husbands. The exhortation is within marriage. Everything that we've said so far concerning submission in marriage may have no bearing on your life until the very moment you enter into the covenant of marriage. I got a little something special just for you guys in the notes, guys. One principal question you must face as you face marriage, is this the guy that I am prepared to yield my life for the rest of my life? They're all asking, I wish someone would have asked me that question. Your parents, your pastor, your friends can't answer this question for you. But guess what? We're all bringing up. We got teenagers now. It could be within six years that we're having weddings for our kids. I mean, it's crazy stuff. But um, we can't answer this question for our children. This is voluntary submission to love. It can only be willingly embraced, never imposed. And so fiancés alone must answer this. Is this the man to whom I'm prepared to yield to for the rest of my life? I like his looks. I like the outdoors. He likes the outdoors. I like his parents. He likes my parents. We both like dogs. We both like blue. We're both Republican. Big deal. Is he the man you're prepared to yield to for the rest of your life? Can you respect him enough as a human being to yield to him for the rest of your life? Just because he's been given the office and the calling and authority to lead doesn't mean he has the inherent ability and strength to lead, whether spiritually, intellectually, or otherwise. One Puritan exhorted Christian wives, if you will have the management of a ship, see that a fool is not placed at its helm. (laughs) Or if you've watched... Indiana Jones, the medieval knight, speaking to him as he prepares to drink from the vessel, you must choose wisely because the effects of choosing poorly are fatal. The Bible does not require the submission of women to men, but rather the submission of a woman to a man. This protects her to duties uh, from other men or to just anybody. One preacher prayed out, God help us from the thought that women were created to be submissive people in general. A godly woman and a wise woman will limit her range of options. The more God has done for her and given to her, the more the woman excels, the more selective she's going to be in picking her husband. My sister was an example of that for so many years, two years older than me. uh, She didn't get married for years and years until she was in her 40s. And just kind of a given up for her. And that was fine because that's not God's ultimate desire for people. Like she can be awesomely effective in ministry as she was being single. Yet she had that desire to be married. And the Lord brought Joseph into her life 
Uh, though he went through a wilderness of, of sin and struggles, God saved him and redeemed him out of that. And now they're in ministry together. And, but she was so selective and just not willing to just jump into any marriage, just to have a man in her life. Um, so I'm always so proud of her for that. And God was so faithful to provide for her. One man said, some women have resorted to playing the dits in order to get any man. Oh, sorry. (laughs) A godly woman should not lower her standards. Marrying a man who does not have the intellectual or spiritual strength to lead the home is just asking for trouble. Abigail did not go well with Nabal. If you know that story of David. This call to this broad everything submission does not mean that all Christian women must submit to all Christian men. It doesn't mean this type of submission doesn't mean that a husband is in the ultimate authority. There's the church. If your husband's in sin, call for the elders. There's God. Submission does not mean that the wife becomes a slave who never opens her mouth or gives her opinion or counsel. This is the second time we've kind of gone through this part, and I just put the verses in there for you, and you can read those later on your own, but they're great pictures of the wife speaking up and giving guidance and advice and counsel within marriage. And one of the final verses there, Proverbs nineteen fourteen, that a prudent wife is from the Lord. Some women go to the Bible and they see, well, okay, we've got Colossians 3 and 1 Peter 3 and Ephesians 5 and 1 Corinthians 7. Wives, submit to your husbands. And what she hears is he makes all the decisions. He thinks through all the issues. He's the boss. I just shut up and do what I'm told. That's not what these verses mean. Check out Jesus. He submitted to the Father while he was on the earth. Amen. Jesus says, the father has sent me and I say what the father tells me to say and I do what the father tells me to do. Even in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says, here's what I want and here's what I think, but not my will, your will be done. He's submissive, but he's passionate. He's submissive, but he's vocal. He's not just always silent passive, without opinion, no conversation, no communication. He's not that way. And for a wife to submit to her husband is to submit to her husband in a way that Jesus Christ submits to God the Father. Overtly silent and compliant wives have an issue with the fear of man. Proverbs twenty nine twenty five says the fear of man brings a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. Ed Welch is a biblical counselor. And he wrote, fear in the biblical sense is to be afraid of someone. She's afraid of her husband, his displeasure, frustration, discouragement. Uh, I should have said it's not to be afraid of someone in that sense. But it extends to holding someone in awe. He's way too big and Jesus is way too small. Being controlled or mastered by people. I just do what he says. We replace God with people. Instead of a biblically guided fear of the Lord, we fear others. In our teens, it's called peer pressure. 
When we're older, it's called people-pleasing. A newer term being used is codependence. Or I would add, in an unhealthy marriage, enabling. There's a difference between submitting and enabling. Submitting, he's submitting to the Lord and I'm submitting to him, helping him to honor the Lord. But enabling says he's not submitting to the Lord. Am I still helping him to do things or do things in a way that are dishonoring to the Lord? A wife who does this is disrespectful to the Lord and the husband. Enabling is not helping. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 6, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, lowercase l, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. In this example of Sarah, we see obedience and honor. Wayne Grudem says, an attitude of submission to a husband's authority will be reflected in numerous words and actions each day, which reflect deference to his leadership and an acknowledgement of his final responsibility. I want to read that again. Deference would mean acknowledging and, and kind of nodding towards it. An attitude of submission to a husband's authority will be reflected in numerous words and actions each day, which reflect deference to his leadership and an acknowledgement of his final responsibility. Peter Marshall, that chaplain to the Senate many years ago, said, do not give way to fear. Dear wife, fear not, but do and say what is right. You may think that being silently compliant, you're being respectful, but you're not respecting God's call, God's word, and God's will for your husband in marriage. The temptation is to think that our life will be miserable if I don't do what the Bible tells me. Husbands are inconsiderate, rude, abusive, harsh, mean, dangerous. But don't live out of, fe out of fear, gals. Live out in faith. Don't live out the worst case scenario. Live out the hope of the best case scenario. When dealing with submission, all of us can go down this path of that we can't trust anyone but ourselves. I'm the smartest. I'm the wisest. I'm the safest person I know. That's the deceit of Genesis chapter 3. So submission doesn't mean that a wife cannot seek to influence her husband. Apart from God, she should have the most influence on her husband. She's not an elder, but she's a great help. Submission does not mean, this is the fourth thing, that a wife is inferior to her husband. First, uh, number five, this call to submission does not mean that a Christian wife must follow, follow her, her husband into sin. Where were you, Heather? I needed you to correct my notes today. <laughs> Submission does not mean that a wife... By the way, I never asked her, so that's where she was. <laughs> I could have done that. Submission does not mean that a wife is to submit without limitations. She must only submit, quote, as is fitting in the Lord. Colossians 3.18. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Remember that comparison to Christ and the church. Is there any limit to the church's submission to Jesus? No, but it's a given that everything Jesus does for the church is bound up with her greatest good and her holiness at heart. Her subordination in everything 
logically follows that her husband always has her welfare and holiness as his greatest interest. She is to submit to him in all areas until he, number one, forbids her to do something God commands. And number two, commands her to do something God forbids. At these points, he is not leading like Jesus Christ, as her welfare is not his greatest concern. So she confers to the authority that is greatest in her life. Matthew Henry wrote again, Let the wives be to their own husbands in everything, in everything to which their authority justly extends itself, in everything lawful and consistent with duty to God. The secondary authority is always secondary. Husbands are a secondary authority. Even if it's been ordained by God. When we look at the role of submission to the government, even if the government, which is ordained by God, asks us to do something that is in defiance against God, we must humbly and in a Christian manner disobey so that we can obey God. And so within marriage... If the husband says, honey, call in sick for me, will you? But he's not sick, there's a problem. Or we jointly made $70,000, but I'm going to report only $45,000 this year. This is close to home. Honey, let's wreck our snowmobile and turn it into the insurance so we can get a better snowmobile. Glad she said no to that one. It was just hypothetical. Um, it wasn't us. What about, hey, sweetie, honey, spend time with me. Sundays, it's our day to sleep in. Don't go to church. I don't want you to go to church. I don't want you to read the Bible. We have examples of this type of poor headship in Daniel chapter 3 and Daniel chapter 6. In Daniel chapter 3, they're to bow down to the golden statue, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse. And they say to the king, O King Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you've set up. Or in Daniel chapter 6, verses 6 through 10, Daniel was told not to pray to anybody but the king, and yet his custom was to pray three times a day facing Jerusalem. Of course, that was all a trick by the governors and satraps to have Daniel thrown into the lion's den, and Daniel knew, hey, it doesn't matter. I'm going to be in the presence of the Lord, and I'm called to be a man of prayer. In Acts chapter 5, Peter and John were arrested for preaching the gospel, and they were commanded by the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court in Jerusalem, commanded them to stop. In Acts chapter 5, 28 and 29, and then in verse 33, says, saying, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you fill Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. 
Down in verse 33, when they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Peter, James, John, lived with the consequences of submission to God. Sometimes you're thrown in the fiery furnace. Sometimes you're thrown into prison. Sometimes you're thrown into the den of lions. But anything else is idolatry. This type of obedience to the Lord is taking up your cross and following Jesus. So when a husband forbids her to do something God commands or commands her to do something God forbids, she must say, I have to obey God rather than man. And it may be that in her obedience, she's going to share in Christ's humiliation and Christ's suffering. But it also may be that in her obedience, she's a testimony of holiness and righteousness to that husband who needs the salvation of the Lord. So note this, the church's submission to Jesus Christ is an encompassing and unqualified, unlimited, and unrestricted. The wife's submission to her husband is all-encompassing and qualified. It is limited and restricted by her ultimate allegiance and devotion to Jesus Christ. A positive aspect is this, is that the call to This everything submission, submit to your husbands in everything, does mean that a Christian wife must exercise submission in every area of her life. Paul means this in the prepositional phrase, in everything, or we say all-encompassing. The whole scope and duration, all the aspects of the relationship she shares with her husband. This doesn't suggest that there's no room for freedom or individuality or expression. But it is to say that a Christian wife must never act unilaterally in defiant, non-compliant autonomy or self-sufficiency. How wonderful, maybe refreshing to hear that, wives, you're still an individual Husbands, this is an encompassing, this encompassing submission of the wife must never be an excuse to deny your wife's individuality. Did you know she's entitled to her own opinion? Whether it's in line with yours, or maybe it's drastically opposed, or it's somewhere else on the radar scale. She's entitled to her own feelings, opinions, and thoughts. Submission doesn't mean mute silence or forced agreement. Verse 33 calls her to respect you husbands, not always to agree with you. Artaxerxes said, I have observed over years and years and years and have witnessed the consequence of this kind of thing again and again and again. A husband oppressively dominates his wife, controls his wife, manages and exploits his wife so that she so that she squelches her perspective. She shuts it down. She closes off year after year after year until finally, like a bottle of Coke, she explodes in defiance that is in the antithesis of everything she's been trying to be, often at times completely renouncing her Christianity. So don't hold it in and don't bottle it up, gals. It's okay to have your opinions and thoughts and to have counsel in the marriage and if you need help with being able to do that there's a lot of christian godly men and women who are just 
able to help guide you in this and help walk through this with you um, in your marriage. So reach out. It's okay to ask for help. For your wife, husbands, to articulate a difference of opinion or question your conclusions or show you errors in your thinking, these are not indications of a rebellious spirit, providing that the attitude behind her communication is clearly Christ-like. To the contrary, when done in a loving and respectful manner, it can actually be done in support of your headship. Husbands, we need to stop hiding our small soul and our easily bruised ego behind the allegation that our wife has been demonstrating a lack of submission. We need to notice her need for individual expression. She does not lose her personhood when as one of two, she becomes one flesh with you. Everything about your headship, men, is enveloped in a savior-like kind of love. She never has to fear getting trampled on, overrun, or obscured. Piper said, when a man senses a primary God-given responsibility for the spiritual life of the family, gathering the family for devotions, taking them to church, calling for prayer at meals, when he senses a primary God-given responsibility for the discipline and education of the children, the stewardship of the money, the provision of food, the safety of the home, the healing of discord, that special sense of responsibility is not authoritarian or autocratic or domineering or bossy or oppressive or abusive. It is simply servant leadership. And I've never met a wife who's sorry she's married to a man like that. Because when God designs a thing like marriage, he designs it for his glory and for our good. I think there was just an encouragement at the end of the notes that for women that are struggling with submitting to your husband, perhaps the issue is for you is not yet yielding to your husband or submitting to your husband, the issue for you today is that you haven't submitted to Jesus Christ, who's the perfect husband. And so that was uh, part eight, the extent of submission. All right, so get your questions sheet out. In fact, let's take a quick break. Just a quick break. Stand up, stretch, do some jumping jacks. Get one of those delicious sandwich rolls things over there. <laughs> I'm a fan of a good sandwich roll. I'm not going to lie to you. Got some rolls of my own, though. Probably don't need too many sandwich rolls. Quick stand up, and then we'll just go through some of the questions. Everybody's got a question sheet. Might grab one up here if you don't have one yet. All right, I'm just going to pray over our time, some discussion here, and uh, Lord, as we kind of wrap up the evening and just try to stimulate a little thought, um, we pray that you would just bring just Holy Spirit-led um, searching of our own hearts and our own behavior and just what's been going on in our home lately and 
what are things we need to just repent to our spouse of and repent to, uh, repent to our children of, repent to you from, Lord. And we just pray that you would uh, just let us be strong enough to kind of talk to our spouse about these things and go over them and just hear from them, be humble enough to like receive thoughts and, and perspective on our life. And you would just use it to bring healing and hurting homes and equipping for helping other marriages out in the future and, and just making our marriages much more than surviving, um, but to just be thriving and um, representing you well in this world and to our kids, Lord. So just uh, give up our question time to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, looking at part seven, some questions from that teaching concerning the dignity of submission. Which worldview, whether it's the feminist or the egalitarian or the complementarian view, have you and your family historically lined up with? Why would complementarian be most consistent with God's design and biblical precedent? And why would going away from this be detrimental? So it kind of goes back to the chart and the little pictures at the beginning of your notes and some of the different worldviews, um, what we see from Scripture. Um, no doubt this is kind of like a controversial topic. I mean, submission itself is controversial. Um, but the thought of roles within the home, um, you know, in our culture, that's something that is resisted or balked at. I think a lot of times because there's a misunderstanding of value and worth, um, and then even, you know, kind of what we just wrapped up, like the extent of submission and, and, and all of that, um, and so when you look at that, even in your little charts or the little pictures at the beginning, there's some circles that are either, you know, separated with you know, kids in the middle, or maybe there's a little bit of blending together, but the kids are still in the middle and they're the blending, or kind of that final complementarian is that one flesh aspect where it kind of looks like a target there in your picture where we are one um, with the Lord, you know, being over us an umbrella, uh, over us as an umbrella and so, not only is complementarian, I believe, the most biblical, consistently biblical principle we see in the scripture uh, for marriage, but also in a way for, like, uh, the leadership within a church, and uh, nothing to do with the value or the worth of a, of a woman or of a wife, but with the, the roles that God has called men to in society, and... Um, within churches and within homes and there's still like just a kaleidoscope of beautiful colors of ways that uh, women can serve and operate and function and use their gifts and their talents and their abilities and and uh, it's just it's a beautiful thing but there's great detriment um, when you get away from that complementarian design of the Lord um, within homes and marriages and communities and might be something to just be thinking about and to look at um, as uh, you kind of go forward 
in the series, one more week left. So why would it be important to view your marriage as a covenant rather than a partnership? This maybe takes us back to the first week just a little bit, but anything come to, my, to mind um, that's maybe beyond what we talked about tonight concerning covenant versus partnership? Or what ways is it, you know, there's like a partnership there, you know, no doubt, but what way, in what ways is covenant maybe really the better explanation for marriage? Oh, yeah, wow. That's, Are you a businessman? That's literally what I was thinking of, is that partnerships can be dissolved. And in fact, in the partnership agreement, usually when you form a partnership, there is actually an exit that is written into the agreement, should these parties do, um, do but with marriage covenant, that's not written into the marriage law. So, so prenups might be, uh, you know, the, the, the way out there. No, um... <laughs> I mean, our, obviously, like, our law has it done like that, but, I mean, God's law is not like that. Yeah. Man, I like the way you put that, too. I wish I wish the microphone was over there so we'd get that on, but just not easily dissolved. There's no, like, dissolving way out of the covenant. It's um, versus partnership, which does have that way out as the, with the dissolution. Any other thoughts? Covenant versus partnership. What do you think of when you think of partnership? What do you think of when you think of a covenant? Jacob. Yeah, totally. Really, that's like God's covenant with, um, so like Abraham is what you're referring to. I mean, I think of Noah and the flooding of the earth and that covenant that he made with our rainbow, you know, it's like, no matter what you guys do, I'm not going to flood the earth again, you know, and then the new covenant with Jesus, um, like, it's just about just trusting in him and faith in him, not our performance. And yeah, totally. So covenant, covenant is an agreement uh, that two parties make. Um, and it's often sealed. Uh, the pledge is made with the sealing of some sort, like uh, in the exchange of some items, you know. So um, a ring is typically what we do nowadays, you know. Um, and uh, I like the, sim- the story of Jonathan um, and David. And was it David that forced Jonathan to make a covenant with him or Jonathan that forced David to make a covenant. I can't remember one of them was just like, be my best friend forever, you know, and they exchanged some like expensive, costly garments in that friendship, you know, but um, yeah, covenant, uh, just there's really no end in sight, no dissolution of it. Um, of course, we know kind of biblically the end of the marriage covenant is when death, right? Till death do us part and um Biblically, that's the case as well. But why is it important? Think about that as you go through the questions this week. Why is it important to view your marriage as a covenant? Um, We mentioned it like the first week. And then if you know Stephanie Mapes on Facebook, she shared it this week. It was the same quote from Piper that the beauty of the covenant in marriage is that um, Jesus will never 
break his covenant with the church um and and it and he'll never break his covenant with us and it's a picture of the covenant of marriage um or vice versa rather that we would never break our covenant with one another by the grace of god and by the strength and power of the lord um because it's a picture of jesus and jesus never breaks his covenant with the church so i thought of that this week when i saw that post Number three, how does a husband leading by sacrificial servant savior-like leadership encourage a wife toward honoring and affirming, or encourage a wife toward honoring and affirming his leadership? Just something to be thinking about the um, that lifestyle, that servant leadership. Does that prompt biblical submission from uh, the wife? Uh, Does it prompt respect towards him? Does it uh, prompt affirming of his leadership? You wrote something here. What were you thinking there when you wrote that? No, I was just... God help him. What does that mean? (laughs) (laughs) This is not what it says. (laughs) No, I was just starting to jot things down, so don't read it. Okay. It's fine. You already answered your own question. That's good. Any thoughts on that? How does a husband leading by sacrificial servant, savior-like leadership, encourage a wife toward honoring and affirming his leadership? Gals, do you have any thoughts on that? Wives in the room? Like, I don't know. I'd like to see it someday. (laughs) I'm kidding. As someone who's seen it so much in our marriage, what would you say? You've ans- you answered your own question okay. already. Okay, I gotta stop doing that. Okay, this you time said, it's all about you guys. Okay, like his leading should produce that in her, right? So if he's leading well, then she would be like, Lord willing, be submitting. Let's make it personal. Well. <laughs> okay, Use how personal do you want? First to get? person pronouns, please. <laughs> I was joking. Let's not do that at all. <laughs> Tyler and his wife, our church. Yeah. Um, Ooh, here, you do this one, number four. How is the statement, a good Christian cannot be a bad wife, derived from Ephesians 5.22? So Ephesians 5.22 talks about as to um, the Lord. Right? So as her relationship with the Lord, she's walking in submission to the Lord, then she is walking in submission to her husband, will walk in her submission to her husband. Good Christian cannot be a bad wife. Anybody ever feel like a bad wife as a Christian gal? Is there ever, ever that feeling? And then at that point, maybe if the Lord is bringing, maybe your husband says you're being a bad wife. Go spend some night. No, I'm kidding. Don't do that, but don't do that. (laughs) But if the Lord is bringing conviction towards that, it's time to get with the Lord and go spend some time with the Lord, even momentarily, uh, to let him walk out the as to the Lord uh, type submission. How does a husband saying, I get my way, or I make the final call, how does it different from... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there was no squiggly line underneath it in spell checks. I just thought it was fine. Okay. 
can hear my mom. Always read it out loud and then you'll hear the mistakes. Okay. How does a husband saying, I get my way or I make the final call, differ from I love you and have to make the best decision for your benefit and I am in every way absorbed with what is best for you? How, what, anybody catching the di difference there at all? Nope. Seems, seems the same to me. I'm going to keep going with option one and two. Um, <laughs> which is more consistent with Christ-like headship? Number two, and th or number three and four. I like two. Very good. I meant the second. <laughs> Any thoughts on that one? I want to get these to you guys earlier so that you can be thinking about them. All right, the extent of submission, part eight. In what ways have you experienced marriage being for your happiness? So it's not that there's no happiness in marriage. There's a lot of wonderful, um, happy things that marriage brings, and mostly just being with you. <laughs> but in what may, ways may it be even more for your holiness? And so just that aspect of the refiner's fire that marriage can be, or being a parent, you know, and just the chiseling away of self and selfishness. And, um, you know, for husbands to like, you, you begin to see the need to lay down your life for your wife and for your children and put their needs above your own. Um, ooh, you got something. Doesn't your mom always call them sandpaper people? Yes. She does. So people that are frustrating in your life, my mom calls them sandpaper people because God uses them to like just refine and polish off our rough edges, you know, and the Lord uses trials as that as well. And so um, sometimes your wife could be your sandpaper person. <laughs> and sometimes the husband can be uh, the wife's sandpaper oh, no, person. Oh, no, no. I don't think that's in the notes here. <laughs> um. And so just consider just as you're going through these rough times and it's challenging, like the Lord wants to use it um, to make us holy and represent him. And from two weeks ago, I think it was, um, when we're in those times where uh, our wife or our husband is a bit of an inconvenience to what we're trying to do at the moment because of their attitude or their behavior or their the way they might not really be helping us by trying to help us or whatever. This is totally hypothetical. Um, we, and we want to like lash out with quick, fast, harsh responses to just get them just not here right now because I've got this going on and I need this and I want it like this and I've got my ways of how it needs to be and frankly, you're just a bit of a an affront to it and it's messing it up. So if I could just put you in your place real quick and lash out and you just get out, then I'm going to be fine for a second. And of course, like the minute after you do that, you're like, that just ruined everything like long-term, you know? <laughs> and I think it was uh, Tim, uh, Paul Tripp, who was saying that in those moments, like we need to be reminded that our wife is our ministry and that those, those times where that's happening, those are opportunities to minister um, to our wife. And to our husband, you know, um, not my husband, your husband, yeah. Um, and uh, 
And by doing that, God's refining you guys. He's working holiness in that. And there's ministry that's happening that is infusing holiness into the home. Uh, you read number seven and then tell us what you think. In what ways ought the bride of Christ be submissive to Christ as the head? Are there ways that you struggle being in submission to him? So that might be just good private time with the Lord in your journal, you know, as you're in the word. Just like, Lord, are there ways that I'm not willing to like bow the knee to you in these areas of my life? And just sometimes that's a scary thing because you don't want to give those up. And so it's hard to be vulnerable before the Lord. But just in obedience to him and in love to him, take that time privately with the Lord and let him speak to you concerning those things. And then go to your spouse and, and share it with your spouse. Share that sin struggle and that sin issue and idolatry in your life. That the, This is what the Lord's been showing me, that I'm not submitting to him in these ways. And it's going to reflect in the way I'm submitting to you, husband, or in the way we're submitting to one another in the fear of God, as verse 21 tells us. So uh, that's, that's a good kind of spend some time with the Lord and give it to the Lord and maybe even ask the Lord, like, I'm not sure I want to talk about this with my spouse. And just, just ask him to take you to a point where you could talk about that and um, repent to one another. You can read number eight, too. Women, have you ever been instructed that you are inferior to men in general and that as such you were to be submissive to all men? How is this a distortion of Ephesians 5.22? All right, so um, probably have seen this in our culture or in... Um, some of the previous generations that have come before us, I know that um, I've seen it, you know, within not my immediate family, but in just the sphere of my family spread out. And, um, and so just, it's good to go through this and to just realize like the equality factor, the equality um, fact that let us make them in our image the Lord says at creation. And so he did. He made them male and female in his image. So there's no less value worth. And then the distinction of the roles comes in particularity to the office. Um, so depending on what role it is biblically, for instance, the office of elder, bishop, or pastor, um, according to Paul, would be for men and and then when it asked, like, oh, what about the changing of times and the changing of seasons? Think about it. The design uh, that Paul talks about in the year 50 AD goes clear back to creation. And so, you know, talk about 4,000 years of that being the design that God had set up. And, and then Paul addresses some of the sin struggle issues that women may have and maybe more they're bent towards sin in a certain area where it's very important concerning the leading of the church that deceit not happen. And so he goes back to Adam and Eve and design and in, in the struggle in the garden. And he says, and so therefore, since 4,000 years ago, that is something that you know, we're protecting the church from today. 
And it doesn't mean that women don't have incredible roles and value and, and, um, and you know, maybe even deacon-type roles or deaconess offices in the church. You'll get Phoebe in Romans chapter 16, just like astoundingly awesome, and Paul wants to make sure she's taken care of. Uh, and the word is deaconess uh, there in the Greek. And so, um, so certain roles and offices that the Lord says, and it just goes with submission. Like, are there women who are way more intelligent than men and way more intelligent and more organized and better? Probably every single woman in this room could be a better lead pastor than me. So we got that out of the way, right? And it's just the, the role and the calling and the gifting and the, that the Lord has called well, me, at least for this church. Um, so I think it's just helpful and good for us to have conversation and, and hear that um, it's not women inferior to men or women submit to all men, you know, because um, that would be a great distortion of that. Did I answer the own question, my own question for that? I don't think so. Um, husbands, have you ever put your wife in a place that she felt that as a submissive wife, she was required to enable you towards ungodly behavior? Oh gosh, I'm really scared to ask Lindsay this. <laughs> so I guess we'll talk about that one later. <laughs> What comes to my mind, yeah, I am. (laughs) I don't mean to laugh. Uh, It was free 7-Eleven Slurpee Day, and I went in with a few extra cups. No, I'm joking, I didn't do that. Um, I'm just thinking about, like, Lindsay's conviction towards, like, some of the things that our kids would watch on TV versus my conviction, you know, and and maybe her sensitive conscience towards those things. Um, But that I, or maybe even us together, you know, and just like, oh, it's okay, you know, or it's fine, not a big deal. But my, uh, as Peter calls her weaker vessel, um, has convictions in that way. And how many times I've bullnosed through that, for instance. Or how our guns are stored in the house or something like that. <laughs> Hypothetically, you know. Just got my loaded pistola just under my mattress. So they went, I'm just, I, I don't really, just calm down. But just ways that, you know, it's like maybe this could be to the detriment of the safety of our home or I'm feeling like this wouldn't be good. And I'm like, this is how my daddy did it and my daddy's daddy and my daddy's daddy daddy. <laughs> and this is how we're going to do it, you know. So, man, this is really hard for me to talk about. No, I'm kidding. What? There's probably more, but those were just the two things that came to me. Not a big deal. I mean, come on, really. Um, but so think about it for yourself. No one, you guys are like cool as ice. You're like, I can't think of anything. Let's move on. Good job, guys. Good job. Oh. Let me think about that one again. Husbands, have you ever put your wife in a place that she felt that as a submissive wife, she was required to enable you? Toward ungodly behavior. Hmm. We're, ta- we're talking about the issues and we're keeping it funky, I think. No, I'm kidding. Number 10. <laughs> husbands, this is for you again. How have you, as a husband, forbid? And so, forget the brackets real quick. How have you, as a husband, forbid your wife to do something God has commanded? 
or commanded her to do something God forbids. And maybe you're thinking like, I don't really command her to do things. And maybe in our, you know, this day and age, you don't necessarily say, I forbid you from doing something. Because that always goes over real well. May have used that once or something. Maybe not. Eh, you don't remember? I don't remember. Um, <laughs> so maybe I'll, maybe I'll soften the edge on this question just a little bit with the words in the brackets. How have you as a husband discouraged your wife or hindered your wife from doing something God has commanded? So you're not making room for her to be in fellowship with other women or, you know, to be at the women's Bible study or uh, be in fellowship or be a part of regular fellowship within the church or to be using her gifts that God's given her for the edification of the body. Um, you're just discouraging her from things that God's commanded her to do. Um, or kind of just sharpening, uh, softening the edge off of that. Maybe you've um, suggested or hinted towards or pressured her to do something that God actually forbids. So what are some things, does anything come to your mind of something that God commands wives to do? that maybe you've heard husbands forbidding their wives or discouraging or hindering their wives from doing that. Probably like fellowship, like in some of my counseling and having gals come in and they're like, my husband like has actually like forbid me to come to church on Sundays and I've got to like, he's a non-believer and I've just got to like step out in obedience and do that. But um Maybe not flat out. I mean, I don't know that I've ever heard of anybody flat out forbidding, but like definitely fellowship discouraging and hindering. Like, yeah, I, I mean, we've seen that in marriage counseling before, I would say. Yeah. Uh, counseled couples where the husband has tried to get his wife to watch pornography with him and, and act out pornographic scenes and stuff like that. And so, um, you know, that's an example of, uh, suggesting or hinting hinting towards doing things um i mean honestly just throw sexual immorality in there this junk drawer term of like stuff that's happened within sexual immorality that the husband has hinted suggested and then even set up for wives to be a part of things like that and so that would be an example of kind of that other didn't need to even file the edge off of that one, would it be? It's like, whoo. Um, but, uh, but that would be an example of like maybe wives going into immoral things like that, feeling like they've got to, um, well, I'm supposed to submit, so I guess we have to do these things. Um, yeah, I probably have like a number, probably five different sexual uh situations where um, either the husband was lined up and, and caused those things to happen or tried to get them to happen with a wife. And then other things, and I'm not going to get specific, but that wives have tried to just pass off her responsibility to um, be with her husband. And so just giving her husband permission to go ahead and go do sexual immorality so that she doesn't have to like so she can just kind of not I mean 
the inconvenience or the bother, you know. So that would be kind of the opposite, you know. Um, maybe not directly applicable to the role there, but things that uh, you've seen there. You have anything to add? No, last one, last one, guys. Oh, oh my goodness, I'm sorry. Gosh, this time has just flown by. I've enjoyed every minute of it with you guys. Okay, last one. Wife, have you acted in a way that was unlo- okay. Wife, have you acted in a way that was unilateral, defiant, and non-compliant when your husband was actually attempting? And let's move on. Miss the brackets real quick. When your husband was actually attempting to walk in the role of a godly husband, so he he's trying to walk in the role of his God's design, and and you've acted unilaterally, defiant, non-compliant, and then. I had to just kind of throw in the brackets there that even though maybe it's imperfectly, like, we're just a bunch of dorks, you know, and it's like, oh, I'm, I guess, man, I guess I need to read the word to my wife and make sure we're at church and try to pray and maybe lead some worship songs with the family. And it's just like, just so like clunky and like, you know, in the beginning, God, you know, and it's like, oh, bother, you know, and so... Uh, wives, you ever done that? You ever done that? I'm sure I have. I am feeling convicted for you right now. Um, <laughs> no, I for sure have, and the Lord has corrected me in very specific areas in doing that in our marriage. Case in point. Actually, right here? <laughs> yeah. What do you I mean, mean right not here. You, you walked in submission, and you've just been willingly, voluntarily was, uh, coming up to this bench with well, me right well, now. Maybe that. I'm trying to, okay, uh, and then you help me lead worship, and you come up on the stage, and that's, like, out of your comfort zone, like, I'm saying you're doing well, you're doing a job, but, so, good things to think about, you guys, are you enjoying this as much as I am, I mean, this is just, we could stretch this out for another hour, but I ran out of questions, so what can you do, all right, you guys, take the time of intentional getting together, talking and praying through the questions, and uh, just trusting the Lord enough to get vulnerable with the spouse that he's given you and just see what kind of health and healing and restoration the Lord will begin on that path. So Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you and give you peace. May his presence be upon you in a thousand generations and your children and your children and their children's children and your children's children's children. Okay. Oh, yes. Oh, don't forget tomorrow night is our hot August night dinner together as couples and do you have the address for that up there okay in redmond there is one more week of this yeah and it's so great so we'd planned the um dinner before we even planned on doing this class and so now we've got this just extra bonus night um, in the second to last night. It's just awesome how the Lord works, isn't it? It's all him. Okay. God bless you guys. Have a great evening.